Hi, I'm your host James Treewick, and you're listening to The Art of Inquiry. In this episode, we sit down with Diff Crowther for the final installment of our mini-series on Shakespeare. I hope you enjoy. Alright, we are back for episode 13 with Diff Crowther. It's the final of this kind of mini-series we've been doing, looking at, at Shakespeare and diving into uh the the world of really what's under the skin of shakespeare uh looking at just a whole range of kind of his his works not obviously looking at all of them but looking at a fair few to kind of dip our toes in them and see really the gold that's there uh and so we thought and i thought to finish this this mini series what we'd do is we'd look at the moments our our favorite moments or some moments of gold in shakespeare that are just like Man, that that's awesome. And obviously there's a lot building up to these moments a lot of the time. It's, you know, there's scenes, there's characters, there's plots that have been happening. And so to be able to talk about these, we're probably going to have to talk about uh, a fair bit to be able to look at these individual moments. But that's kind of what the process is. So that'll be good fun. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Diff. Yeah, not a problem, mate. Thank you. And thank you for the shirt that you sent me. Oh, yeah. Do you like it? it was, yeah. It's the uh, Wisdom Begins in Wonder shirt. Yeah. Yeah. How'd nice. it fit well? I haven't even tried it on, but ah. uh, I will. I will when I get home this afternoon. Good, good. We'll uh, we'll post a photo of that so people can see what well, one your face, but more importantly, the shirt and how good it looks. You know. Yeah, I'll just cro- I'll crop my head out. And say, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good. Um, awesome. Well, you know, I thought before we actually jumped into them, it'd be kind of worth um, prefacing that obviously we've already talked about a lot of moments of gold. You know, mm-hmm. in this the the past three episodes, I mean, mm. and when I was when I was looking at you know what did I want to talk about, I was kind of realizing that a lot of the moments that first come to mind are moments that we've kind of talked about or moments that we've talked around. So mm. like it would be kind of weird to um, look at some of these things when we've already talked so much in depth about other parts of that character or that play. Where I thought you know I'd probably go somewhere different, uh, but you know really like. The final scene of, scene of King Lear is there's so much energy, uh, emotion built up in that, and that's such an awesome scene. Or Lady Macbeth's whole, like her invoking of the demons and then her going mad, those two separate scenes are also really mm-hmm. powerful and really gold uh, when mm-hmm. you kind of think about it. But, yeah, so I thought, you know, today we might come back to some of those plays and they might rise in discussion, but it's going to be really cool to kind of uh, look at some some other things. So, obviously, like last week, we spoke a lot about a lot of different moments of gold, you know, and you might you might readdress some of them or go back into them again, which is which is fine. But yeah, there's definitely, I mean, if people are coming to this episode and going, oh, this this is the moments of gold episode. This is where I'll go to decide which play I'm going to now go listen to or watch or read. Um, you know, really that's that's kind of what we've been doing the whole time. So <laughs> really the uh, answer is any of them. Um if that if you're going to be interested in it, you know, maybe don't start with with one of the histories unless you're really really interested in in some of those kinds of stories. Uh if you're not sure, I mean it's it would be an interesting thing to think through like what is the best first Shakespeare play to read, particularly if you're going to read it by by yourself like in isolation and read it mm. not watch it. What would you recommend? Oh. I feel like it wouldn't be one of the comedies because so much of what's happening there is the actors and the stage. So I feel like it would be you'd be hitting a hitting one of the tragedies or one of the romances. Yeah. I think if you're if if you if you hit a comedy, you're automatically required to have a really pretty decent grasp of the language because so much of that comedy is actually in the language. And so if you're mm. struggling with the language, you want something I mean, I always think Macbeth is the best one because it's shorter. 
um, and because it's just a lot of action and it's a fairly straightforward mm. play, you know, to to get involved with, you know, a lot of action. Um, it's pretty clear what's going on. There's witches, there's evil, there's betrayal, there's lots of death and murder, there's war. But it's actually, um, yeah, it's it's a much, much shorter play than some of the other plays like Hamlet. Mm. So I would always say Macbeth. And then probably the other option would be Romeo and Juliet because it's uh, everyone kind of knows the story already. Mm. So if you've never read one before, then you could start with reading one of those two. Uh, and reading Shakespeare is so different to watching it. I think it's a really, really enjoyable experience. I don't think it's anywhere near as enjoyable as watching it personally. That's just for me. Uh, but reading Shakespeare can be a really enjoyable experience in a different way, which is you really get to see and experience the words and the wordplay that Shakespeare has and just how well he writes and crafts the dialogue of these characters. So if you've only ever watched Shakespeare, um, it's worth having a crack at reading it as well. It can be a very rewarding experience. Definitely. No, I agree with that. I'd, I'd say um, watching it is, you know, I'd always, if, if I had to choose between reading it or, or watching a live production, I'd go watch a live production, given that it's a good live production. Yeah. Um, but I also think when you read it, like reading it aloud, especially because it's, you know, in, in verse, mm. not, not yeah, prose. Yeah, aloud is important. Yeah. So much, so much our power in that and just being able to hear how the words sound and how they flow. Uh, it's really cool. But anyway, let's start off the uh, our, our moments of gold. And I thought I'd let you start seeing as how you're the, well, the expert on this podcast. You're the expert guest. So uh, what have you chosen to look at first? Well, like you've already said, there's so many moments of gold. And, you know, there are a lot of plays that obviously we won't be talking about. You know, I thought about The Tempest. I thought about Julius Caesar. Um, I've already talked about one of my favorite, very obscure ones, which is Cymbeline in that moment when Yakimo comes out of the out of the chest. <laughs> but I thought I'd go with another late play, uh, late play, uh, which is uh, Winter's Tale. And Winter's Tale is a really it's an interesting story. Um, it takes place over quite a protracted amount of time. There's basically a moment in the middle of the story where which is like twenty years later, you know, and you don't see that in Shakespeare plays. Uh, in general, it, it usually they're kind of these contracted periods of time. So it's just like one mm. chunk of time, one slice, one moment. You know, Macbeth probably goes for maybe a month, maybe two months mm. in total. That's a guess from memory. Um, but what we have in Winter's Tale is uh, the story of uh, Laontes, the king, and his friend Polixenes, who's a king of another place. And they're hanging out. And then his wife, uh, Leontes' wife, Hermione, is entreated by Leontes to say, to, to get Polixenes to stay. So Polixenes is like, oh, I've got to head back, man. I've got to get back to where I'm from. And Leontes is like, no, no, you got to stay. And then uh, Polixenes is like, no, I'm, not, I'm really busy. Got to get back. And then Hermione, Leontes says to his wife, Hermione, can you please try to get him to stay? And then he watches this scene of Hermione trying to convince Polixenes. And Polixenes does stay. Uh, and it seems to work. And then all of a sudden, Laontes gets this idea in his head that there's something going on between his friend and his wife. And it really spirals out of control from there. Laontes gets kind of consumed with jealousy uh, and a whole bunch of stuff happens. He imprisons his wife. She actually dies. Uh, and then it's kind of 20 years later, um, one, uh, one of his kids has gone uh, run away and has ended up being in the in the kingdom of Bohemia where Polixenes is from. And eventually all the kind of pieces come back together again. 
And the, and the end of the play is this very, very strange scene where there has been a statue made of Hermione, this golden statue of Hermione. And as all of these kind of main characters are standing around looking at it, there's this very strange moment where the statue comes to life. All of a sudden, it's a statue, and then it's coming to life, and now it's actually Hermione. And there's a whole bunch of questions about this, you know, like, what what is this? First of all, you could ask, how do you stage this? Mm. Is it Hermione standing there, like the actor who plays Hermione standing there frozen, in which case it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of obvious immediately what's going to happen, um, depending. And, and even then, like, is it gold or, you know, is it turned into, does it look like stone? Does it look like a statue? And then how do you get it to come back to life? Or when it comes to life, how does it stop looking like a statue? And then there's these other questions about like, well, was Hermione, did Hermione ever die? So is there magic? You know, was did Hermione die and she kind of got buried and, and disappeared and stuff? And then this an actual statue is made and comes back to life. Or was Hermione always alive? And this was just this clever ruse that 20 years later, uh, Paulina, Hermione's servant, and Hermione start to go, I think he's learned his lesson. Let's come back to this life. Is, this is like, there's a bit of um, argument around these these two perspectives, right? Because you never yeah. see her die. It's said that she dies in prison. Mm-hmm. And so people are either saying that, you know, she just got hidden for 20 years and then she came back. And this, this was kind of the way, oh, the king's, the king's come back to rationality. Now we can reintroduce his wife to him and he'll be glad that we have and we'll say it's a statue or, or whatever. Or there's the other side, which is, you know, she was killed. He killed her, and then there was this statue, and there's magic that happens, and she's brought back based on this interaction between the two of them, right? Because mm-hmm. there's an interaction between the two of them that leads to the transformation. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember the the lines exactly or how it goes down, but it's it's not like there's just a statue, and then it comes back to life as Hermione, and he's like, oh, my goodness, it's Hermione. It's like before, like he acknowledges the statue before it becomes. Yes, that's life. right. He's looking at the statue, and he's like, man, this is an amazing statue, right? So, I mean, he says at one point uh, when he pulls it out, um, well, so they pull the they pull the statue out, or it's behind a curtain. They open it up, and when they open up the curtain, um, Paulina says, "It is required you do awake your faith. Then all stand still. On those that think that it is unlawful business I am about, let them depart." So there's this kind of weird moment where Paulina she knows what's going to happen. And she's like, you've got to awaken your faith in order for this to happen. Leontie says, proceed, no foot shall stir. Then Paulina asks for music to happen. So some music starts up. And she says this, tis time, descend, be stone no more. Approach, strike all that look upon with marvel. Come, I'll fill your grave up. Stir, nay, come away, bequeath to death your numbness. For from him, dear life redeems you. You perceive, and then he's turned, she turns to everybody else, you perceive she stirs. And then Hermione starts to move, and it says Hermione comes down, like she comes down off the pedestal. Paulina says to everyone assembled, start not. Her actions shall be as holy as you hear my spell is lawful. So there's these questions about, like, what's going on? Like, is this some sort of holy, lawful, God-ordained magical moment that's happening? And that's why she said at the start, anyone who thinks that this is going to be on lawful business should leave now, even though no one knew what was going to happen mm. at that point in time. 
Um, and then she says this, you shall hear my spell is lawful. Do not shun her until you see her die again, for then you kill her double. Nay, present your hand. When she was young, you wooed her. Now in age is she become the suitor. Leontes says, oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. And then they're like back together again and married. And there's this question about even when she says, um, when she was young, when she was young, you wooed her. So Hermione is even aged. Mm. So it's there's so many questions about what is going on here. How does this happen? Why does this happen? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a magical moment that I think could be done horrendously. I remember the first time I read the play, I was like, "What is this? Like, this is the strangest moment I think in any play because it seems completely." out of the blue it's like you've mm. got this whole story and the story's kind of over and then it's like hey by the way let's go and let's go and have a look at this statue i i got made and then it turns into hermione again so it's the only real tragic moment in the whole play gets redeemed at the end which is not a tragedy you know this is why it's called either a romance play or a problem play it it doesn't fit within these neat categories like so much of other shakespeare's work Mm. And so this this moment, I mean, like someone could hear that and they could have that exact reaction that you had the first time. She's like, oh, that's just weird. And even you can say, yeah, it's magical, but so what? That's just weird. Like, like in so many other things, the fact that it's magical doesn't really make it astounding unless you can kind of understand why, why it's so magical. And I, I remember the first time I read this as well, we, we were doing it at, at uni um, and and accompanying it was a paper that you'd written. Um, I don't know what it was titled, but I'll, I'll title it The Basilisk's Eye because that's the <laughs> concept that was running through it. Um, and when, when, I, when, I, yeah, when, when I read that paper that you'd written and they explained that, it was, um, that's really what made this go, wow, that's, that's something awesome. So do you want to explain that a little bit? Because that would actually kind of bring some weight to it. Yeah, there, there may have been two papers uh, I referred to the paper in mine of uh, of my professor at the time, Professor Daryl Chalk, and he wrote one called Make Me Not Sighted Like the Basilisk, which is a line from the play. And a basilisk is this ancient mythological monster who has the ability to turn something to stone with its eyes, like in its sight, right? A little bit mm. like the Gorgon sisters, like Medusa, right? And so uh, there's this there's this interesting play on words and there's this interesting theme kind of underlying all of this, which is that um, what Leontes does when he looks at Hermione and Polixenes is he stops seeing them as people. So my, my paper was called freezing alterity and freezing was spelt with the I. So it was like turning it into a freeze. So when he, when he rejects, um, Hermione, and he does reject her continually. She starts, she tries to appeal. There's like these mock court cases and stuff, and he continually refuses to allow her to be her. Like he, he basically sets her in stone at that moment. He captures this moment where he sees her and determines this is what she's doing, and then never lets her escape from that. So one of the ways of thinking about it is at that very moment, he makes her into a statue. He dehumanizes her. He has the eye of the basilisk and he freezes her. He freezes her by rejecting her alterity, which is a word for her kind of 
her his acceptance of her as an other, as a person. Mm. And over the course of the play, Leontes is slowly disabused of this this uh, this problem that he has of not allowing people to be who they are, of rejecting the thou. So I, I, I talk a little bit about Martin Buber's concept of I and thou in that. He rejects the thou of other people. He rejects other people's um, yeah individual otherness to him. So he sets everybody up around him as just characters in his play, in his story. And then over time, he is healed of this. And by the end of the play, he is able to see her for for who she is again. And therefore, she kind of becomes unfrozen. The statue becomes real. He accepts her otherness. And so she can exist again. It, it's operating at a very metaphorical level. And you're still always asking this question of, but what's actually going on? But it works. This is this is how the play was became went from being kind of a silly, confusing play to me to something far more powerful was to see that it's it's a magic play, and so it's dealing with thing with metaphysical ideas, ideas bigger than just some basic plot. Even though there are basic plot points, there's this whole scene, you know, there's like a like a a big old feast, a shepherd's feast in the in the middle of a field, you know, with all these people carrying on and, and clowns having a good time. There's people get eaten by a bear and chased off by a bear. Some strange stuff happens in it. The whole thing is got this kind of almost like fantasy overtone. And so allowing things like this to happen in it rather than taking it very literally, um, it starts to communicate at, I think, really profound levels. Mm, I agree. And I think I remember when I, when I read that, I went, oh, that's that's such a powerful um, notion. There's, there's something deep to this. And I think it was two years after that, that course, we did um, a course on moral philosophy and we got onto uh, Roger Scruton's book on human nature, which is mm-hmm. a, his kind of uh, his version of deontological morality. Mm-hmm. And, and his argument in that is that we have, we are subjects all humans are subjects in that we have autonomy and we perceive the world through a subjective lens and we've got this rationality. He said, but the moments that we act immorally is when we treat other subjects as objects. Yeah. So, exactly. and, and so that's really putting the philosophy behind that in terms of that person being a person. And then you have, you've set them in stone in your mind as a, they, they're an object to you. They are not a subject who has their own reasons, their own rationalities, their own world, that they are perceiving like you. And so it's really this, yeah, this I am thou. And rather than I thou, it becomes I am it. Uh, and, and yeah, and so seeing the seeing the other as an it rather than a person, an object rather than a subject was just really good. I mean, it's it's obviously a uh, pretty powerful notion for me as well, but I've, I've got a, a tattoo of, of Perseus holding up the Gorgon's slain head. Mm. And part of the reasoning behind that as well is because, you know, Perseus's act in doing that is, not not the traditional interpretation of the myth but for me his act of doing that is you know slaying that part of ourselves that part of us that wants to set others into stone that wants to look upon them as objects Mm. Uh, and so yeah i mean it's that scene is awesome it really is Mm. and i remember i think yeah i I must have gone through the same experience of you as thinking this is odd and then coming to understand the kind of philosophy that's underwriting it and going wow this is this is powerful yeah. And then, and, and you see it, you know, once you get Shakespeare's like this, you know, there's like these little keys. And when you see them, it unlocks lines that you thought, what's the point of this line? Or you just read over it and you don't, don't even think about it. But 
when you look at it through a certain lens, there's this whole other angle that you can see. And really, it's important to note, this is just one angle. You know, you can read, this is why there are so many different approaches to Shakespeare, because you can take just about any approach to Shakespeare, because he writes in this way to be kind of for all time, for all people, so open. The story is the story, and it keeps its complexity, but there are all these little clues throughout it, you know. So you can read, you can read Hamlet, for example, as a conversation about the Reformation and about Protestantism versus Catholicism. You know, you've got the question of the ghost and he wants to know, is the ghost real or is it a demon? And that's literally a Protestant Catholic mm. distinction, you know. And then there's the whole idea that Denmark actually falls apart. And there are countless papers written about the fact that it's because Hamlet chooses a Catholic answer to the question that it's a ghost and not a demon, that everything falls apart. And there's questions about the fact that, well, what what was Shakespeare? Was he Catholic? Was he Protestant? Mm. Um, you know, I, I think that Hamlet is a really interesting example of how Shakespeare was able to sit right in the muddled middle of Christianity, right in the fact that in Elizabethan and Jacobean times, everyone hadn't forgotten Catholicism, but everyone needed to be Protestant. And so people were kind of stuck in the middle of that. And and a lot of hist historians would say it didn't really matter. People just went about their day-to-day -day lives and kind of enjoyed being stuck in the middle of that. And Shakespeare's writing in this really complex moment, and he's able to write, I think, a play in Hamlet, which Catholics read as Catholic, Protestants read as Protestants, and people that don't really care don't really care. So he can he can just win over everybody. No one at the end of that play can say, this guy's a Catholic or this guy's a Protestant. Everyone can think, this guy's on my side. And that's what Shakespeare does so well. He writes mm. to every person for all time. But I wonder whose side he's really on. Uh, he's probably not on the... The idiot side who still enjoys it for idiot's sake, or maybe he is. I mean, like it, the truth. Well, is, yeah, I mean, writing he writes some hilarious, yeah. hilarious, silly, lots of sex, bawdy humor, toilet humor. Like he doesn't mind. He'll he'll go anywhere. He's writing for an audience, exactly like you say. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I guess the audience. Great thing about him is that his audience um, extends beyond his time. There's some yeah. works that you'll read, and you're like, "This is pish. This is whatever, yeah. man." Like, yeah. but it, nah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, following on from, from that scene, which is great, and I kind of thought you were going to talk about this scene, um, and anyone that listened to the episode two that you are in, you kind of mentioned it briefly as kind of being like one of your favourite scenes of Shakespeare. Um, mm. So following on from that, I wanted to pick a scene that uh, we hadn't talked about and a play that we hadn't really talked about. Uh, and I was looking through and I went, oh, what's something that really, you know, like there's so many, and I like, I guess... I'm trying to preface the fact that I've probably picked one of the most famous scenes of Shakespeare ever. And so me saying like, oh, this is a moment of gold as people going like, yeah, of course it is. Like we all know that already. Um, but I think the conversation we've just had kind of helps to preface it a little bit and kind of we can further this conversation a bit with it. And so the scene I'm going to be looking at is, is Romeo and Juliet act two, scene two, which is, you know, the famous balcony garden scene where, where um, Romeo has, he's met Juliet there's been previously this interaction between the two of them and they're they're these two people from if you don't know the plot I mean, it's, I'll tell it to you as briefly as it is two lovers from two different sides of a family feud or a feuding family sorry and they they fall in love and then there's a tragedy that happens by them not being allowed to be together but they want to let love prevail so they they kind of try and do this trickery and there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in the middle which ends up with Juliet faking her suicide, Romeo not knowing that and seeing she's dead and going, well, I will die too. And then he dies. And then Juliet wakes up to see 
uh, Romeo dead and kills herself then. Uh, and it's just this huge, huge tragic thing. And often like a lot of people talk about as kind of being youthful love. This is this is the woes of youthful love. Um, yeah. It's kind of like that's classic. That's why that's why it's so good in schools, you know. Great exactly. chances to lap it up. And and because like this is probably one of the plays that most people are aware of, and especially the scene and the plot of it. Uh, but I feel like it's always worth re-going to because there's so much richness in it. And so I'm just going to read some lines from it because it's just man, it's pure poetry. Like some of this. Some of the other monologues or, or dialogues that you hear in Shakespeare, you're kind of picking up every third line and you're kind of piecing it together and it really requires you to kind of grasp with it a bit to be able to get the gold of it. Whereas I feel like this, this dialogue between Romeo and Juliet is just so, you don't need to do any work. The poetry hits you, the meaning hits you. Sure, there's stuff in there that you can be drawing out, but it's like this is one of those moments where you can just sit there and take it all in and just just enjoy it for whatever level you are uh so i'll read a few and then we'll we'll pause and talk about it um Mm. but yeah so scene two enter romeo he says a little bit and then he goes but soft what light through yonder window breaks is it the east and julie oh it is the east and juliet is the sun arise fair sun and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief that thou her maid art far more fair than she be not her maid since she is envious her vestal livery is but sick and green and none but fools do wear it and cast it off. Oh, cast it off. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. I am too bold. Tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business, do entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars. As, day, as daylight doth a lamp, her eye in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. See how she leans her cheek upon that hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. Ah, me, Juliet, Romeo, she speaks. Oh, speak again, bright angel, for thou art as glorious to this night being o'er my head as is a winged messenger of heaven unto the white upturned wondering eyes of mortals that fall back to gaze upon him when he bestrides the lazy pacing clouds and sails upon the bosom of the air. Juliet, O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I shall no longer be a Capulet. Romeo, shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? Juliet, tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though, not a Montague. What is a Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose bee by any other name would smell so sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes. Without that title, Romeo doth thy name, and for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. And then this is this is just brilliant. Romeo's responding line is, I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. That's like, you know, a third of the scene or maybe yeah. not a quarter of the scene, but it is just beautiful. The language that's being used there is beautiful, but also this and the way it ends, you know, they're, they're talking about that, how you can really see the love in the language, but but where it ends and Romeo is saying, call me but love and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I'll, henceforth, I will never be Romeo. And there's this whole discussion going on about, you know, and Juliet's questioning it. What is in a name? What is in this sense? What is 
what does she mean when she says Montague? She in herself has got these, these preconceptions around what a Montague is. Mm. She has set the, the other family in stone as an enemy. And mm. then having met one of them before knowing that and allowing love to pierce her and make her, her vision renewed, she sees Romeo for what he is, which is not an object, but a subject. And it's a mm. subject that she's in love with. And therefore, when he says, you know, call me, but love, and I'll be new baptized is almost a saying, it's not that he won't be any different, but that if she comes at him with love, if she calls him, but love, if she accepts him for who he is through love, then what will happen is that he will not be the object, which she, he has been presented to her as by her family, you know? And so there's this whole discussion about, you know, we're talking about the basilisk's eye and subject versus object and seeing it, thou is an it. And what's the remedy to that? How do we, how are we actually seeing someone as a, as a you, as a thou, as a subject? Well, you could argue, and this could be, this is the interpretation I'm grabbing from Romeo and Juliet here is that it is, it is love that is the, the catalyst to being able to see someone as a subject. You know, you can question, do you truly love someone if you don't see them as a subject? Mm. And, and the other way around is when you're seeing someone as a subject, does that mean you're actually loving them because you are giving them their due, seeing them as they ought to be seen? Yeah, I'd love, love to hear what you are, your response or what you think about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost, I kind of get the feeling, I, I can't see the text in front of me necessarily, so I'm not sure of the punctuation, but when you're saying it, when he says, call me but love, is he is he saying, is he calling her love or is he actually saying, if you call me love, it will rebaptize me? That's is what that, he's saying. Yeah, he's saying, he's call saying. me but love and I'll be new baptized. I'll take a new, you know, baptize you a new name is the connotation. There. Yeah, and, and so obviously it's this idea that, rather than being identified with anything he becomes fully identified in love and love becomes his name not just some random name it's not like just escaping his name but it's like this love like exactly what you're saying this sets us free from these shackles of the families that you know these these we didn't make these decisions we're not the people in this feud we're just caught up in it and so it's love that sets sets them free from that. I mean, I just, the, you know, like you say, the poetry of it is great. The the whole opening line, you know, but soft with light through yonder window breaks. And and then later on when she touches her cheek, I just love it. He's like, oh, man, I wish I was a glove. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, that's just, when you just hear it, like, out of context, the whole idea to, just, to want to be a glove is just the silliest thing. But in the context of the whole thing, you can just see this. And, and you know, part of it is the the genius around the staging you know so she's up mm. in a balcony and he's below and they can't she he can see her she can't see him but there's also this separation there's there's a there's not just physical space in the vertical in, in the horizontal but in the vertical as well these two worlds look like they can never really be together there's this there's this gap between them and how is this gap going to be traversed you know i mean i don't know what you think of it but Personally, not a, not a huge fan of Baz Luhrmann. In fact, I don't think I like any Baz Luhrmann movies, except for I'm a big fan of the Romeo and Juliet adaptation. And I think one of the reasons that I'm a fan of it is because it's almost like the perfect movie for him to have done. And it's the perfect movie for that style because it is this kind of teenage, angsty, you know, colourful, crazy movie. Like, I, I don't feel like he does, and I'm sure plenty of people would disagree with me, but I don't feel like he does any 
tremendous dis- injustice to Shakespeare in the way that he does it. It's almost like he is he is taken. He didn't lose anything. Um, have you seen it? Are you, are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah, I'm yeah, just waiting yeah. for you to say anything. Well, I, he I did. Agree, I'm just, yeah. I just, he didn't lose anything in his in his um, adaptation of it. I feel like he did what a lot of people try to do with Shakespeare, which is, oh, Shakespeare is great, and I want to, I want to give it my spin. And a lot of the time, the spin is artificial. You know, I remember I, I saw a production of Hamlet and it was during wartime and they were kind of listening over old radios uh, to to kind of listen in because a lot of moments in Hamlet where people are hiding and listening in and stuff and so it's all like top secret spies and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are always listening in on everything that's going on. It was interesting, but I didn't really feel like it did anything. It was just like, I've got to have a take, so I'm going to have this take. Whereas Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, it did, it, it just amplified what was already there. Like, I mean, like, it, it, was, it was a very natural um, take on it. Like in terms of, you know, you're right. It's the teenage angst of this of this play is there. And I think, um, but I feel like sometimes that teenage angst is kind of, and maybe it's the setting that most people are introduced to it, you know, year nine, year 10, hmm. Romeo and Juliet, your English teacher kind of says, oh, look, they're in love, but it's this teenage love and look where it ends them up and they're all hmm. dead and, hmm. and where, and, you know, there's questions of, oh, could they have been wiser in the way they went about it? And all these like questions about the characters' actions. And like it's there's always value to be drawn from just asking questions of Shakespeare. But I feel like, like, you know, there's there's something about that that almost uh cheapens or yeah. lessens the love that's there and the tragedy of what happens to these these lovers, you know, like it's brutal. That's so brutal that like the parents have kind of force these kids into this position and that happens but it's also reflective of what is generally i mean it's it's apt that teenagers read it because teenagers often don't care about society or mm-hmm. or their parents kind of uh, presumptions of things and their their yeah. judgments yeah. on things um but it is but also the, yeah it's a fresh the other view. thing that gets in the other thing that it gets in the way of is uh the language you know like mm. i just but that is it's a very difficult task to have young people appreciate the complex language of Shakespeare, you know, the po- the poetic nature of of the writing, I think takes a while. It takes it takes a uh, a degree of focused effort and attention, like a long period of attention. And uh, these days, we're just not very good at that. We, we've we've trained ourselves from from a very early age to not be able to attend to things for a long period of time. It doesn't really matter what it is. You know, it used to be you would say, oh, well, you know, people can attend to a movie, but I don't even think people can attend to movies that well anymore. People are flicking through Facebook or Instagram while they're, while they're watching a movie, having conversations. So that whole idea of having your attention fully focused on something for a, for a long period of time, that's uh, that's sadly really really diminishing and mm. that's what's required to get the most out of shakespeare which is why i can understand a lot of people really struggle with it definitely but that's why as, as i was saying at the start that's why i think this scene is it does require you to focus on it right yeah. but it doesn't require much of you in terms of this is like you can follow it quite easily compared to some of the other um like say iago's lines where you're kind yeah. of like what is this this double meaning that he's doing on every second line and how do I really follow what's happening? Whereas if you can't really follow what's happening here, um, I mean, and I'm sure there's people that can't, it's all about, you know, your, your ability to read and understand anyway. Mm. Uh, but this is probably one of the more easy kind of scenes to really follow uh, yeah. in terms of a deeper, deeper meaning and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
Brilliant. Well, I mean, look, we've got really five minutes left. So I'll give you one last one in yeah. three minutes. Okay? Sounds good. And it's from a comedy because we haven't spent enough time in comedies. It's from my favorite comedy, which is A Midsummer Night's Dream. I think a lot of people would say, oh, you know, there's there's better comedies out there. And potentially for um, for really good, you know, uh, characterization and really good uh, you know, like Much Ado About Nothing or Twelfth mm. Night. Um, these these are wonderful plays. They're beautiful, right? Um, or, but I really like Midsummer Night's Dream because of how much physical comedy you can get out of it. It is such a good play for people who really don't understand Shakespeare to go and see. And you can understand the whole thing because of what is going on. So we've got four lovers, Demetrius. And um, so Demetrius is in love with Hermia. And Lysander is in love with Hermia as well, although not massively in love, but there's an arranged marriage that he's supposed to be going along with, and he does really like her. And then Hermia's got a friend called Helena, and Helena is in love with Lysander. And so these are this is our combination of four people. Uh, two of them, so uh, Demetrius and Hermia, uh, are in love with each other. They're not supposed to be in love with each other, and so they run off into the woods together. And then Helena follows, and or Demetrius follows. Uh, no, I said Lysander follows. It's very confusing. And then Helena follows. And the four of them end up in the woods together, and there's this mischievous uh, uh, fairy kicking around called Puck. And Puck has been given a job to do by Oberon, uh, the fairy king, to basically screw around with them. And he gets this, gets this flower uh, and puts it on their eyes, and when they open their eyes, the next person that they see they fall in love with. And so there's this wonderful scene where the whole thing's inverted. And Helena, who no one loves, no one likes Helena, and she's kind of this um, co- completely forgotten character in the whole thing. Uh, all of a sudden, there's this moment where the two guys, instead of both being chasing after Hermia, are chasing after Helena. And she doesn't believe them. She thinks they're just screwing with her. There's a wonderful scene where Demetrius goes to sleep and Lysander has had... The, the the potion put on his eye and he's chasing her around saying I love you I love you and she doesn't believe him even though this is exactly what she wanted mm. she doesn't believe him because she's like you you're just you're just messing with me there's no way that you can just change instantly like this Lysander says Demet- um, Demetrius loves Hermia and doesn't love you I love you right and then Demetrius wakes up all of a sudden and immediately sees Helena and Helena's just been like you guys are messing with me there's this perfect moment where Demetrius wakes up and looks at Helena and instantly says, Oh, Helena, goddess, nymph, perfect, divine, to what, my love, shall I compare thine eyne? Crystal is muddy, oh, how ripe in show, thy lips, those kissing cherries, tempting grow, that pure congealed white high Taurus snow, fanned with the eastern winds, turns to a crow. When thou holdst up thy hand, oh, let me kiss this princess of pure white, this seal of bliss. And then she absolutely loses her mind. She just is like, everyone is set against me. Even Hermia is set against me. Then Hermia rocks up. And of course, Hermia still wants Demetrius. And then the fight ensues where they're kind of like, get away from me. And the physical comedy of what is going on there when the whole thing is reversed around. It's absolutely gold. Not to mention the fact that, of course, uh, Oberon actually asks uh, Puck to play a trick on his fairy queen, uh, and she for a while falls in love with a man who's been turned into a donkey called Bottom, and then there's a ridiculous play at the end of it. But that moment, for me, the moment is uh, in that act uh, where all of a sudden, so it's act three, scene two, when everything has been reversed and they're just screaming at each other trying to make sense of what's going on. It's 
absolutely yeah, it's, brilliant. It's brilliant. Hilarious. It's a great scene. I didn't realize it was so um, far in the in the play, Act Three, Scene Two. That's you know, from my like memory, it's like oh, you know, that's like start of Act Two. That's well, like- it get, it gets reversed. I mean, that's as bad as it gets. And then mm. he puts them all to sleep. Puck puts them all to sleep, and everything gets reversed. And that's kind of the end of it. And then we we go on to Act Five, which is this complete separate thing where the actors, mm. these stupid idiots that have been kicking around the mechanicals, been kicking around in the woods the whole time, um, put on a play, and that play is just insane. Yeah, but it's yeah. hilarious. It's it was such great. a funny yeah. play. No, that's a good play. Oh, I've really appreciated these discussions because it's just made me really want to go read and watch more Shakespeare. Awesome. You know, I think, um, I hope other people have had the same kind of experience listening. They've gone, you know, I want to pick up some Shakespeare or even, you know, find where one is playing locally or mm. maybe go to like a Brisbane or a Sydney or a wherever and where, you know, there's a higher kind of stage quality and go go watch something because, yeah, it's uh, something that, you know, like Shakespeare is so gold and most people are aware of him but most people don't appreciate him. And so it's like, we've got the capacity to appreciate him. You just got to kind of pay attention and go and, and seek it out. Yeah. Uh, I always would say to my students, they'd say, why do we want to, why do we have to do Shakespeare? And there's plenty of good reasons. But the main reason that I would say is because you'll, you'll have a nicer life if you do, because you will be awakened to this whole amazing world of Shakespeare, which at the moment you don't understand. If you like it, it's gold. And I, mm. I genuinely think that most, if not all people, will like it if they spend the time to understand it. And you'll never regret it. If you get to that point where you understand it and you appreciate it, why would you regret that? You've just introduced a whole bunch of joy into your life. Definitely. I agree. Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for coming on for the not past four episodes, Diff. I hope people have enjoyed It's been a great conversation. Uh, and I feel like we've been able to really span a fair bit in brief brief amounts and kind of drop a little bit here and there a bit of color hopefully people are able to pick up these plays and kind of remember these conversations and and see how they play out uh which is great night yeah thank you for coming on we'll uh post a photo of you in that merch so people can you know uh get a get a feel for the face in the merch and get buy one or both i don't know if you sell your time or <laughs> i don't know where i'm going with this if you're <laughs> but, um yeah, you know, people are willing to seek you out, learn more about you. Where, where should they go? Oh, geez. I'm not very good at selling myself. But if they, if you looked for the Chiron podcast, C-H-I-R-O-N, that's really my only thing that I'm kind of public about. So you could probably find me on LinkedIn if you want, but I don't know why you would. Well, I mean, otherwise, if they wanted to hear more about your thoughts on things, you've done, you've published things in the past. You've done other kinds of things yeah, that people a couple are of able chapters to engage in- with. Yeah, some chapters in some edited books have come out and I've, I wrote some articles a long time ago that are online somewhere. And I, and I am a host of another podcast uh, called The Pursuit of Love with uh, with two friends of mine who I work with, uh, Steve and Darcy. So, yeah, there's plenty of stuff out there, I guess. It's a slowly growing catalogue of things that I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. Well, if people search Diff double uh, triple F Crowther or Kenneth Crowther, I mean, they'll be able to find you in different uh, avenues probably, in different ways. <laughs> but, no, thanks for coming on. And I- Cheers, man. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, feel free to give us a like, review, or follow us on your favorite uh, podcasting platform. If you want to support us in another way, we also offer merch on our website, which you can find in the description of any of the episodes. Uh, there's some cool merch up on there just of the podcast artwork or of a Wisdom Begins in Wonder t-shirt, which we were mentioning and uh, in this episode here, which Diff got a hand of. We've also created a shirt specifically for this miniseries on, ha- uh, on Shakespeare. The shirt is a scene from Hamlet uh, with kind of a bit of an art of inquiry addition to it. Thanks.